trying to achieve justice on behalf of those victims. It can uh, take a personal toll. Sure, sure it can. But but I got to tell you, um, I, I'm always up for the next day's fight because because those people that I serve are relying upon me and they're relying, relying upon this office and this system to protect them. Uh, you know, I always say that I want to give voice to the voiceless. Uh, and I think that an often overlooked person in the criminal justice system is the victim of crime. I think that's why it's so important that victims have rights too. Victims' rights must be protected and respected. Um, and, and, and so I, I never forget that. Um, even, even in the days where you, where you think it can't get any worse and can't see anything more despicable or horrifying, uh, but you know that, that, that the work you're doing is noble, it's important, uh, and, and even if even if people don't really see it or know about it, that it's making a difference in people's lives, individually and collectively. This is Sam. Welcome to the show. I'm glad you're listening to this week's episode. Please check out the other episodes already recorded at podcast.sampcoats.com or on your app, Memphis Voices, Navigating the Unexpected. If you like the show, please leave a review, share it with your friends, and also subscribe to it. This really does help get the podcast out. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Michael, great talking with you today. Thank you. So just curious, how has over the last two to three months affected you and your work and your initiatives and the things that you were starting 2020 handling and focusing on? And have you had to make any just drastic changes or pivots from how you started 2020 versus kind of where we're at now, uh, finishing up the second quarter of 2020? Uh, sure. Obviously, 2020 has been a, uh, a very unusual year with many challenges and unexpected things that have happened uh, to us. Um, uh, we, we uh, as you say, we were beginning uh, some new initiatives and some new uh, law enforcement operations uh, and uh, some, some additional uh, long term investigations and cases that we were filing in federal court here uh, and in Memphis and in Jackson. And, and that that all obviously had to change, uh, got a bit redirected and slowed down as a result of the worldwide uh, COVID pandemic. Um, uh, obviously, our court system um, uh, shut down for all in-person proceedings. Uh, that included jury trials and grand juries. And so um, that limits the, uh, the nature and the extent of the work that we can do moving cases forward. Obviously, we continued to serve uh, the people of the United States. We, we never closed. Uh, we just shifted and max, maximized our staff's ability to work on, from home on telework. We continue to be responsive to our law enforcement partners and to uh, respond to and investigate uh, cases that required federal action. However, we weren't able to move forward on a lot of those cases that, that uh, were ready for grand jury submission or for uh, jury trials guilty pleas or sentencings. And so uh, for the, about the last three months, we've kind of been in this holding pattern a little bit of uh, continuing our work, but uh, responding to a different type of litigation on behalf of the United States, including uh, most notably and most um, commonly those petitions and requests from people in custody who were seeking release as a result of uh, potential exposure to the COVID virus. So we've been, we've been working through those with the courts 
uh, and, and again, trying to keep all of our staff safe uh, as, as we have navigated through this. So any, any person that was held in a prison because of a federal crime, when they would appeal their position in that prison, that runs through you? Is that correct? Uh, yeah, so uh, we would be called upon to respond on behalf of the United States for either those people being held pre-trial in a det- detention facility here in West Tennessee, or for those people who had already been convicted and sentenced and were uh, being housed in the Bureau of Prisons here in West Tennessee. All of those petitions and motions for reliefs uh, were served upon my office and uh, myself and, and my team of prosecutors responded to those uh, and went into court and litigated those on a case-by-case basis, looking at the individual characteristics of each claim and each uh, potential risk of exposure. What's that like? Because it's not like you really have a playbook. Uh, most people don't really have a playbook for something that we haven't really dealt before, especially since it's been, you know, prior before you started practicing or any of us with whatever we do. <laughs> well, well, certainly that there's no specific playbook as to COVID or pandemic uh, health crisis like that. But we do have established uh, statutes and laws uh, and, and federal rules that govern the way that we deal with unexpected changes in circumstances uh, and the need to hold people in custody um, uh, uh, due to the the, uh, nature of the crime charged uh, or the uh, risk of flight or the danger to to the community. And so a lot of things did not change. We just adapted the the existing rules and laws to now consider that in the framework of what was emerging and what has emerged as uh, the, the threat of exposure both inside facilities and outside facilities. When you think about COVID or you think about just really any any time, you know, while you're serving us and our country and doing the work, serving our district and doing the work you do, how do you go about managing all the different cases or all the different things that technically fall under your jurisdiction or responsibility? Um, but I imagine it's a lot more than what you can handle. Like, what does that look like? Uh, Well, let me just say this. Uh, Here at the U.S. Attorney's Office in West Tennessee, uh, I work with some extraordinarily talented and dedicated public servants. I've got a total staff of 85 people that I work with and supervise here, including 45 lawyers. Uh, And and they're incredibly bright and dedicated and and really um, very active, despite the fact that we've shifted to a telework status and we're starting to come back now in in a phased reopening of the court system. But as we know, uh, unfortunately, uh, criminal activity does not stop during a pandemic. Um, uh, Criminals do not uh, socially distance and they don't self-quarantine. And so we still have to be responsive uh, to our federal agency partners, our local law enforcement partners in dealing with those investigations and those incidents that that may violate federal law to to conduct investigations, to make charging decisions. Uh, and to represent the best interests of the United States, both in criminal court and in civil court. You know, uh, civil claims against the United States go on um, uh, regardless of the pandemic. And so we have we have still been able to adapt, uh, appear in court uh, by video teleconference, to still uh, remotely meet with each other and meet with law enforcement, as well as witnesses and victims of crime. Uh, and to to litigate those matters that were most pressing and urgent that the courts would allow us to do. 
So um, as, as I like to say, we are a full service U.S. Attorney's Office, and we are fully prepared, despite the pandemic, to, to handle any and all violations of federal law from the Migratory Bird Act to the Armed Career Criminal Act. How many staff did you have when you were District Attorney General for the 25th uh, Judicial District? Uh, at that time, if I recall, uh, a total staff of 51 people, including 14 assistant district attorneys. So what's it like being responsible for 85 people? I know you talked about having a really good team, but in all the work that, you know, I would just imagine a lot of the, the work that you do, it requires a lot of research, a lot of investigation, a lot of meetings, et cetera. So in a lot of ways, I mean, you know, it's it's pretty individualistic. Um, it doesn't seem too collaborative. Again, some of this is just assumptions that I'm making, but what's it like to take over an 85-person team where uh, there's a lot going on and uh, there's more to do than what you can physically do, but you're, you're, you know, you're doing all that you can, but what's it like coming in and taking over an organization, 85 people? Well, it's, it's certainly, number one, it's an honor. It's an honor to be uh, asked to serve your country by the president to be confirmed by the Senate and to, to walk into an office with such rich tradition and history of successful service to the United States and the people of West Tennessee. Uh, it, it's quite an honor. It, it is a big task. I'll, I'll be honest with you, moving from being a state prosecutor to now being a federal prosecutor, um, it, it's, it, it seems to be a, a larger task more broad in its scope and priorities and responsibilities. And, and I, I would say to you that, you know, I went from, from representing a five uh, county district uh, as district attorney to now representing 22 counties in the Western District of Tennessee, 1.6 million people. And so it's not lost on us that, that we represent the United States and that body of citizens that make up West Tennessee. And of course, uh, West Tennessee it, it has uh, various different types of challenges when it comes to public safety and law enforcement and, and representation in the United States. And so it's quite a task. But, but let me say this. Uh, we, we are collaborative and, and we do partner with with all types of agencies, community partners. We're, we're very forward leaning in that way in the sense that we want to collaborate. We want to share information. We want to engage ourselves in operations and task forces that bring resources together for, uh, to, for the protection and the betterment of, of that 1.6 million people. And that's everything from violent crime and drug trafficking, immigration offenses, public corruption, white collar crime, child exploitation, and national security. And so, and that's just a few things. Um, so it's, it's kind of across the board, but, but we have, again, people who are in this office, who I serve with, incredibly bright attorneys and, and support staff who have uh, great uh, experience in these areas. And then we work with, with the preeminent law enforcement agencies in the country, FBI, the ATF, the DEA, the U.S. Marshal Service, Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Patrol, Secret Service, U.S. Postal Inspection Service, all of those federal component agencies coming together uh, to advance the interest of the United States and, and again, protect public safety. What do you think some of the things are most overlooked with, with your work and your team's work and the work that y'all do for West Tennessee? Or what are the things that you feel like are taken for granted the most by citizens? Uh, 
I, well, that, that, that's a really good question. And it's somewhat hard to, to answer. You know, since I've become U.S. attorney, we've tried to be a bit more visible uh, and, and um, accountable to the public about what we're doing with their tax dollars. Right. Um, we've, we've tried to increase our public information on our website and on social media. And we've tried to make sure that uh, new cases, uh, whether they be uh, new investigations that result in indictments, uh, uh, guilty pleas and jury verdicts and sentencing determinations are all made public uh, as soon as we can. And, and then also the interest of the United States in our civil division. You know, part of my job in, this, in the civil representation of the United States is to protect the United States Treasury, everyone's tax dollars, and to be responsible with those tax dollars. And so I, th I think that uh, something that probably goes unnoticed is that protection of the United States Treasury, those tax dollars that we're recovering and, and um, collecting on behalf of the United States, whether it's by you know, tax revenue or uh, obligations owed to the United States or by protecting against um, a fraudulent or, or, or frivolous claims against the United States. I'll say this, there are some things uh, that the United States government does well and there are some things that only the United States government can do. So for instance, uh, in the area of immigration enforcement, only, only the federal government can do that. If we don't do it, it, it doesn't get enforced. And I think that sometimes people may forget about that. There's no, there's no local or state law that deals with criminal immigration offenses. Uh, likewise, uh, in the area of public corruption, uh, even though there are state statutes that deal with official misconduct of public officials, uh, many of those don't seem adequate to the public to really deal with, root out, expose, and hold people accountable, elected and appointed officials, for uh, public corruption. And that's where working with the FBI, I think, um, sometimes goes unnoticed until there's, a, of course, a big case where people do sit up and take notice. Um, and, and then there are cases that, that, are, that are so heartbreaking and so difficult that we don't necessarily want to talk about them a whole lot in the public, but they're incredibly important. And that's in the area of child sexual exploitation, human trafficking, uh, and those types of cases. We work with the FBI uh, Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force uh, and, and, and the production and, and distribution and possession of child pornography cases that are incredibly um, heartbreaking in the way that they victimize children. And so I think think that, that people might be shocked and surprised to see the nature and the extent of that that, that we deal with, but I, I hope that they would be um, thankful about the fact that we're able to hold those people accountable and remove them from the streets. What do you feel like your office, so we, we talked about maybe things that are most taken for granted or overlooked, what do you feel like your office is most criticized for? I don't know that, that uh, the office might be criticized for this. Uh, sometimes I, I have been criticized as being a bit too aggressive in, in our charging decisions, um, a bit heavy handed. Um, but but I, I, I don't uh, that doesn't bother me too much uh, because uh, that, that I've made a career uh, in the criminal justice system with with making sure that we're supporting and fully and aggressively um, pursuing the rule of law. And I think that that is something that, that is necessary in our constitutional system of government. Uh, and so, uh, and I think it's something that's necessary to protect public safety. Uh, and and um, so I, I would say that, that there are those that believe that perhaps sometimes the, the punishment is a bit too harsh, but those are the laws that, that I was sworn uh, to uphold and, and, and protect and practice. And, and I do so unapologetically.
Can not obviously any specifics, but can you give an example of where something might be perceived as too harsh? We we, mo- we mo- most often see those types of public questions or comments in, in the area of uh, of drug enforcement. Obviously, uh, m- many Americans have different opinions about uh, the the nature of drug enforcement, uh, illegal controlled substances. But let me make it clear in our office that the people that we focus on uh, are not the, the user, not the addict, other than I, the fact that I'm attempting to protect that person's life. We are focus, not, focusing not on the demand side of drugs, but rather on the supply side. It is important for us to use the power and the resources of the federal government to target drug trafficking organizations. And when I say drug trafficking organization, I mean cartel members, people who are organized criminals who are bringing poison, illegal controlled substances into our communities and are selling it for profit. And people are dying from overdoses, from the violence and addiction and injury and heartbreak and, and loss of all manner of quality of life as a result of addiction. And so, I, again, I, I think that's an unfounded criticism when we sentence someone for drug trafficking to a particularly long sentence because people will say, well, it's just a drug crime. But I would say to you that, that in fact, it's more destructive and deadly perhaps than the individual criminal with a gun. The individual criminal with a gun might commit a robbery or a carjacking or a shooting that might result in one or two or three people dead. But the heroin or fentanyl dealer might kill 20 or 30 or 40 or 100 uh, during his time of drug dealing or even more. And so drug dealing, drug trafficking organizations, these, uh, these people who engage in distribution of illegal controlled substances are not nonviolent. They're the most violent among us. And so we believe that those justify lengthy prison sentences in order to protect the public. What is it like having your own curiosity or your own thoughts, but still having a responsibility to enforce the law as it is and as it was before you took office? So let me give you a little background, Sam. So for the first 11 years of my law practice, I was a criminal defense attorney. Well, I, defended, I defended people who were charged with primarily state law crimes in the 25th Judicial District. I spent many, many years representing defendants charged with murder, rape, robbery, child abuse, drug offenses, all types of state law offenses. Uh, and, and many times I did that uh, by court appointment for indigent people, people who did not have enough money to hire their own private counsel. Uh, in 2006, when I became a prosecutor, when I ran for district attorney and the people elected me, I knew that I was accountable to the electorate, but I was more than that, I was accountable to the sovereign state that I was now representing. I've taken a, a public oath of office three times in my career, uh, twice as district attorney because I was elected twice and now once as U.S. attorney. And I, and I, I said earlier, I, I, I believe wholeheartedly and very strongly in the rule of law, but the rule of law in our country and in our state is determined and set by legislative branches. So obviously our constitutional system of government We have checks and balances uh, among the three branches of government. Um, I have been working as a prosecutor in the executive branch of government. Obviously, uh, I took an oath to faithfully execute the laws of Congress. And when I was district attorney, I took uh, an oath to faithfully execute the laws of the General Assembly of the state of Tennessee. And so even if I happen to have 
a different idea or a disagreement about what I think the law is or ought to be. I've taken an oath to uphold the Constitution as it's written and as the laws are written. And so in, in my very position, even now as U.S. Attorney, you can see the checks and balances of the governmental power in, embodied in me. I, I, I work for and I was appointed by the executive. Uh, I had to be confirmed by the United States Senate, which is the legislative branch. Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate make the laws that I enforce every day. And I do that in the Article Three courts, the judicial branch of government. And so all three of those branches coming together to enforce, to make, to enforce, and to interpret the law. And so I feel very strongly that our system of government will not succeed if we don't have public servants who take that seriously, who do that honestly and with integrity and, on, and, and, uh, and, and consistency. Uh, and so it doesn't really matter what my opinion is. It matters what I believe that I can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And it matters what I believe that the intent of the legislative branch was and the precedent of the judicial branch is. Now, it's my job also to, to uh, implement policies and, and priorities for the Department of Justice that I believe will be most effective in carrying out and faithfully executing the intent of those laws. And that includes protecting the people. That includes representing the United States and protecting the United States Treasury. And so I, I would tell you throughout my career, I've been on both sides of the courtroom, but I've always um, practiced law in the sense that I... I didn't get to make the laws. I only got to practice it as it was written. And so I, I think that it's important for Americans, for citizens to understand that there is that constitutional system of checks and balances and that we work within it every day. When did you know that you wanted to be an attorney? <laughs> uh, I, it was in high school, actually. I, I think I was probably 16 or 17 years old. Um, and I, I found that, that uh, I was drawn to, um, more of the subjects of uh, uh, social studies and history and writing uh, and English that I, I seem to be more proficient in those, those skills and those areas and more interested in that. Um, I was not as good at math and science <laughs> as I was those others. And so um, I can recall being in high school and starting to talk with my college uh, counselors about what, what my path might be. And, and I, I knew that I was interested in and, um, and, and felt comfortable writing. Uh, and, and, and my written skills. And so um, I, I was drawn to the law. I, I found it intriguing. I, I very much uh, was fascinated by the adversarial system of law and the ability of courts to make decisions and settle disputes. And so uh, I, knew, I knew when I went to, to undergraduate uh, college at UT that, that, that I would ultimately pursue uh, a law degree. What made you want to go into public service? Well, uh, you know, that, that, that certainly is an interesting story. As it turns out, when I graduated law school, um, I, my, my first inclination was not public service. Um, I, I, I felt like that uh, having a law degree and a license to practice law was really a, an opportunity for me to, to financially help myself, to make money. I mean, you know, I felt right. like that, that I wanted to, I was a young lawyer, I wanted to maximize my ability to uh, to try to build my career and uh, build my financial portfolio, and I and I and I quickly found, although it, it took me eleven years, um, that, that that while private practice was certainly lucrative, 
uh, and enjoyable, uh, it was not as fulfilling as I thought it would be. Um, and, you know, um, I, I had uh, some judges who continued to, to um, appoint me to criminal cases, I be, I, and my practice became increasingly more criminal than civil, although I was doing some other things. Um, and after a while, I, I grew a bit weary uh, representing people charged with crimes, uh, m many of whom were clearly guilty. Um, and, and, and I felt like uh, I, that I, there had to be something more for me. I come from a family. Uh, my father has been a public servant for many, many years in Lauderdale County. My father was an elected official on the city council for many years when I was a young child growing up. And then, and then later, he, he, he's now and had, for many years has served as an elected uh, county commissioner. And so in 2006, uh, I really felt an urge. Um, the district attorney was retiring. I felt like uh, I, I had something to offer to the people of my district, to the state of Tennessee. And so I took a chance and put my name on a public ballot. Huh. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I got to say, Sam, I, I make the joke that all I really ever wanted to be was a prosecutor. I had to become a politician to do it. <laughs> and uh, so I ran for office. And lo and behold, the people of the 25th district graciously elected me in 2006 and then re-elected me in 2014. I'm certainly grateful for that. And, 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 and again, being a public servant, an elected public servant, an elected prosecutor was certainly a unique position to occupy because on the one hand, you serve one client, the state of Tennessee, but on the other hand, you serve the, the entire electorate that, that you answer to um, uh, every electoral cycle. And so uh, people were not shy to tell me about what they thought about public safety and what they thought about uh, the nature of, of, of what I was doing uh, in the courtrooms on their behalf. Uh, but I, I immensely enjoyed it. And I, I got to say, the moment I became a prosecutor is the moment I, I knew I had figured out what my life's calling was. I knew I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, and after about 11 years in becoming a prosecutor, I, I, I knew that this was the skill set and the, the passion and the drive and the purpose that the good Lord had for my life. And so I, I'm so grateful to have been able to do that at some of the highest levels of state government and now some of the highest levels of the federal government. Yeah. Were you nervous when you put your name on the ballot? Well, sure I was. Rejection <laughs> or, you know, uh, you know, it not going well, et cetera. Like, can you describe those emotions? Well, well, sure. I, um, I, I ran in a contested election, um, but it was an open seat. And so I wasn't running necessarily against uh, anyone else, I've always felt like I was just running for the position. And I had spent, um, you know, 11 years practicing law and in the, in the community where I had grown up, in the community where I was now running to be an elected official. And so obviously on the campaign trail, you, you, you meet people, but you already know people in the community and you're asking them to put their faith and confidence in you and, and, to, and to cast that ballot for you. And it, it can be unnerving. It can be uh, very challenging. It can be rigorous, um, but, but that's the electoral system in our country is so great, right? Democracy works because the people get to choose. The people get to evaluate candidates and hear their, their platforms and hear their positions and then vote. And then if they don't like uh, the results they get, they can vote again at the next election and they can make a different choice. And so um, it was my first entree into politics, electoral <laughs> politics, and I was, I was glad to be successful. Um, but it's very humbling as well, because you figure out real quick that the people that you grew up with, the people that you go to church with, the people in your hometown, your home county, in your region where you have 
made uh, connections and friendships and established relationships and credibility are now judging you, are now evaluating you, and now selecting you. And so the, the responsibility um, is enormous and certainly was not lost on me. Has any of that wariness reappeared or reemerged, or do you? No, absolutely not. No, I, unequivocally, no. Uh, again, from the moment on September 1, 2006, that I became a prosecutor until today, I am energized every day to get up and come do this wonderful, noble, great work. There's, there's no better feeling than getting up in the morning and only being focused on doing the right thing. Only being focused on doing the right thing. And so that's, uh, that energizes me every day. I want to find solutions to problems. I want to protect people from crime. I want to improve public safety. I want to promote uh, support for law enforcement. I want to let victims of crime know that we're there for them and that ju the justice system works for them too. Uh, and, and I want to promote that confidence that ultimately protects our community and makes it better. You know, I, Sam, I'm a, I'm a big fan of our second president of the United States, John Adams. And I, I do have, I've done a fair bit of reading on him. I, I've, I've read some of his speeches and his writings. And, 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 and i got to say, that there's one quote that he has that kind of encapsulates what I'm talking about. And if, if you'll bear with me, let me just tell you what he said. He, uh, president Adams said this, he's, and this is during the American Revolutionary War before he was president. But what he said was, he said, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. And, and then he goes on. He says, my sons then ought to study mathematics and philosophy and geography and natural history and architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children a right to study art and painting and poetry and music and statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. Now, I think what President Adams was saying is that he was willing and able to do the hard things of the revolution, politics and war. He was willing as a citizen to put his, 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 his career aside, his livelihood aside, and perhaps even his life aside to do those hard things so that he could give his sons the ability, the liberty to study better things, and to give his grandchildren the right to study and do even greater things and more beautiful things. And I always say that, that I think what he was saying is you got to do the hard things to have the better things. I feel that way about the way we enforce laws here in, in this country and in our communities is that we, we have to do the hard work of law enforcement. And it's, it's dirty and it's messy and it's unpleasant. And we have to deal with rape, robbery, murder, and child abuse and drugs and all the things that plague us as a society. But we have to do that hard work so that our communities can be better, so that they can have the better things, so that colleges and, and schools and school children can, can learn in an educational setting that's safe, so that businesses and the economy can flourish, uh, so that people can pay their taxes and <laughs> we can support systems of government. And, and so I would tell you that um, government, unfortunately, is necessary because there are some people who have to do those hard things. And I love doing those hard things on behalf of the people so that I can give them the opportunity to have the better things. That's kind of how I view it. So obviously you've very clearly said, no, you, you love what you're doing and you believe you talk. I mean, obviously you quoted John Adams and he talked about essentially three different generations of, of work. The first one 
pays way for the second one, and the second one pays way for the third one. What about when you just, either with a case or with emotions or with being exhausted? I mean, again, I'm not trying to create any, I'm not trying to imply anything at all, but I'm just curious, just like, and it's clear you're passionate about what you do and you believe in the purpose and the calling that you have. But what about when you when you're just kind of, do you ever get down or do you ever just get maybe discouraged about the, the, the crime or the pain that you see and just kind of being immersed in those cases or in the choices that people made, et cetera. And I mean, does that ever happen? Well, sure. Sure. Sam, I'm human just like anyone else. And, and that, that humanity and those emotions and feelings that I have when, when dealing with, the pain and the destruction of criminal activity, they certainly take their toll. They can wear on a person. Um, my family would certainly tell you that, that, that sometimes they wear on me more than others. Um, I, and, I, and unfortunately, uh, prosecutors and law enforcement officers have to see the very worst in humanity. We see the very worst in people. We see people kill each other and commit violent crimes, sex crimes against children, all types of dishonesty crimes, all types of things that victimize other people. And obviously when you're dealing with that on a daily basis, you're having regular contact with victims, with pieces of evidence, with proving that beyond a reasonable doubt and, and, and trying to achieve justice on behalf of those victims. It can uh, take a personal toll. Sure, sure it can. But, but I got to tell you, um, I, I'm always up for the next day's fight huh. because... Because those people that I serve are relying upon me and they're relying upon this office and this system to protect them. Uh, You know, I always say that I want to give voice to the voiceless. uh, And I think that an often overlooked person in the criminal justice system is the victim of crime. I think that's why it's so important that victims have rights too. victims rights must be protected and respected. Um, And 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 so I, I never forget that. Um, even, even in the days where you, where you think it can't get any worse and can't see anything more despicable or horrifying, uh, but you know that, that, that the work you're doing is noble, it's important. Uh, and even if, even if people don't really see it or know about it, that it's making a difference in people's lives individually and collectively. How do you motivate your staff, 85 people? How do you keep them encouraged? How, how do you lead them? What does that look like? Well, uh, Sam, I, I have been, um, I've been <laughs> described as a, as a man who walks with a purpose. Um, and, and I'll take that. I'll, I'll wear that. Uh, I, I do have a sense of urgency about me. And, and, and I try to certainly lead with a sense of energy and purpose. Um, I, I, I want, uh, and I did this when I was district attorney, and I've now done it as U.S. attorney. We have the extraordinary privilege of uh, these government jobs, and a lot of people have a lot of cynicism and, and criticism about government employees that they think we're not effective, we're not productive, we're not efficient. And I think that 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 does not have to be the truth. Uh, we can we can lean forward, we can be aggressive, we can be productive, we can be hands on, and we can be accountable to the people. And I learned that quite frankly when I was an elected official, is being directly accountable to the people you serve. And and I haven't forgotten that even now in this appointed position. And so motivating staff is, is not real hard since I'm the boss, but, uh, but, but I would say to you that, that 
when you identify to people the, the common mission, the top priority, and the way we're going to get there, the resources we're going to use, and the difference it makes in our community, uh, it's not hard to motivate people. They see the fruits of their work. They know that it's important. They know it's meaningful. And I would tell you that the, that the job satisfaction rate, I think, here at the U.S. Attorney's Office and across prosecutor offices uh, is high because there is, even though perhaps most of my lawyers uh, could make more money in private practice at some of those civil firms, they could chase the almighty dollar. I think they, they would tell you that they take the lower government paycheck uh, in exchange for the satisfaction of representing a sovereign nation, protecting the public, and making a difference. That's meaningful to people. And so um, uh, it's not too hard to motivate people to want to protect children or to want to do something about gun violence or to uh, disrupt a drug trafficking organization. That's big stuff. And it requires people to, to really be engaged and lean forward. And so I, I've been able to do that. And, and again, I, it's a tribute to the, to, to the wonderful people I work with. Would you say that the, the people on your staff, you know, that, that you've talked about and their energy and their commitment, if they don't have the passion for justice or for um, service and duty, would you say that usually those folks kind of, they move on, they, they churn out and, and go in and practice elsewhere and the people that really stay within, um, stay within public service are people that there's a higher purpose to it and there's a bigger you know, calling to it to, to endure and to when you're logically understanding and knowing that you can, you're making less money, but you're, you're serving your country and your district, et cetera. Sure. I, I think, and I think there's great examples of that right here in our office. We have several assistant U S attorneys here who've been here uh, in this office, serving the United States as an AUSA for over 30 years. What great institutional knowledge, what a history of service. And they've been able to see a development in the law. They've been able to see a development in technology and the way that we investigate cases. And hopefully they've been able to see positive results here in Memphis and Shelby County and across West Tennessee in the quality of life and the protection of the people. Uh, I would say that, you know, obviously in any, any organization, you have people who, who, who don't do it for the right reasons or maybe who are not well suited to the work and maybe move on. That's fine. Um, but we want to make sure that, that we are selecting good people to work here, that they stay here and have longevity and consistency. And, and I think we do have that here. You know, I, I inherited the staff that, that has served over multiple administrations under previous U.S. attorneys, all of whom have been great in representing uh, West Tennessee here. Uh, and so I, I, I would tell you that, that our staff is top notch and, and we've got people uh, really 100% of our staff who are committed and dedicated to the rule of law and, and advancing the mission of the department. You've got 22 counties underneath your jurisdiction, correct? That's correct. What What's it like covering and being responsible for 22 counties? I mean, I, I know you're, you're serving, um, you're serving us off of, you know, the law that's set before you, but curious, what's it like just due to the uniqueness of different counties and how they are and the people that make them up? I mean, what's that like, just the diversity of West Tennessee? Well, I, I'm so glad you asked me that, Sam, because, um, and bear with me, because I've got some thoughts about that. Um, you know, before I got this job representing all 22 counties in West Tennessee, I represented five of those counties as the district attorney. And so those five counties, Lauderdale, Tipton, Fayette, Hardeman, and McNary counties, I got to know very well because I, I had to run for election in those <laughs> counties. And I drove from county to county. I had, an off, I had an office in each of those five counties. 
and I appeared in the courtrooms in each of those five counties. And so I got to know the clerks of court and the deputy sheriffs and the, the citizens and the, the victims and witnesses of crime and the voters of those five counties. And, and they're diverse. You're right. But I, um, I think we have a tendency here in West Tennessee to always think about this district as, you know, Memphis centric. And it certainly it is. Memphis is obviously the largest urban center, largest um, population uh, in the district. Um, but, but, but we go from the urban center of Memphis with this population and its, uh, its challenges and unique characteristics out into the rural part of the district. The, the, uh, I always have to remind my staff, you know, there's 21 counties outside of Shelby and we represent them too. And that includes Jackson and Madison County, another, another hub uh, of, of population and, and, and urban uh, life there. But then we represent the rural agricultural uh, communities like Crockett County and, and, and Henry County and over in Savannah, down in Hardin County. And, and they all have unique public safety challenges. And, 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 and I always say, you know, the federal law, federal law applies all across West Tennessee, not just in Memphis, not just in Jackson. We apply and enforce it uniformly and equally. So if you violate the federal law in Lake County, you're going to get the same attention and treatment from my office as if you did it in downtown Memphis. And, and, and there are unique challenges. You know, here in Memphis, Memphis is America's distribution center, right? I want you to think about this for a moment geographically because you asked me about the geography and the right. nature of West Tennessee. Memphis, uh, America's um, distribution center. We have, we have a major highway of I-40 running from, from the West Coast all the way to the East Coast just about. And we know that I-40 is a major drug trafficking corridor that, that many times – uh, drug couriers used to bring drugs up from Mexico into Texas through Arkansas into Tennessee on the way to the East Coast, right? We know that. And we know that um, I-55 runs from Chicago to New Orleans, right? Another major trafficking corridor for firearms and human trafficking and narcotics. And where does I-55 and I-40 intersect? <laughs> right here in West Tennessee, Yeah. right? Oh, no, by the way, we have the world's largest international shipper right in our backyard, FedEx, right? So every night, um, and, and, and FedEx is a great partner to law enforcement, by the way, at the International Hub, the Customs and Border Patrol, Homeland Security and DEA, we're intercepting parcels of Chinese fentanyl and Mexican methamphetamine and all types of other nefarious things that people are trying to ship into our country or into our district. And then we know that, that on the streets of Memphis, we've seen a rise in heroin and fentanyl overdoses. And yet out in the rural parts, we know that methamphetamine has, has reemerged and is destroying communities and families and lives. And we know that violent crime committed with firearms continues to plague us here in Memphis. We're the third most violent city in America based upon per capita rates of murder, rape, robbery, and aggravated assault. We know that we have a gang problem, not only in Memphis, but in Jackson. We know those gangs fan out into the rural districts up into Tipton and Lauderdale counties over into Fayette County. And so there, there's quite a dynamic geographically of thinking about how we enforce law, how we deal with the immediate challenges that our geography faces, uh, and how we deploy our resources. And so, again, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning, Sam. We are a full-service United States attorney. We're, we represent everybody, and we represent uh, every case that we can prove beyond reasonable doubt. And so if you think about it, if I take a drug dealer off the streets of Alamo, Tennessee in Crockett County, that little small town up there, I may have just 
improve the quality of life by removing one drug dealer and putting him in prison. I may have just improved the quality of life in a dynamic and dramatic way for the people of Alamo, much more so than if I take off one drug dealer from the streets of Memphis. And yet both of them will be prosecuted if I can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt into a moral certainty. And so that's, that's what we talk about is we're talking about leaning forward, being fulsome, being responsive, being productive. You know, so much of what we do, Sam, as prosecutors is very reactive. If you think about it, by the time I go to work, by the time I get a case filed, by the time I sign an indictment, a crime has already been committed. Someone has already been victimized. Someone's been shot. Someone has taken an overdose of drugs. Some child's been victimized. And so very, in, in a real sense, most of, and much of our work is reactive. And that is the, uh, one of the most frustrating aspects of my job is that I have to wait for a crime to occur, hope that I can gather enough evidence to prove it, and then go into a court and hold someone accountable for that under the laws. Some of my proudest moments where I think we've been most effective in my prosecutorial career has been when we have tried to get out of that reactive box and get into that proactive box, where we have leaned forward and said, let's figure out the causes of crime. Let's figure out better ways to deploy our law enforcement resources. Let's engage with the community to cooperate with law enforcement and report crimes. Uh, let's, let's figure out ways that, that we can be smart about preventing crime or deterring crime. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really most proud of that. And, and there's a lot of that that I could talk about, but I would tell you that um, geographically, we try to treat every case in that way. And so I, I, I travel throughout the Western District. I meet with and, and talk with small town police chiefs and county sheriffs. Uh, I, I talk to citizens who are concerned about, uh, about drug trafficking, about child exploitation. Uh, I talk to people about all kinds of allegations of public corruption and things like that. And so I want to instill confidence in them that they know that their federal government, their federal tax dollars are working for them too. They're not forgotten. And, and, and just because we happen to have our main office down here in Memphis. How many, how many cases does your office have going on at one time usually? Oh gosh. Uh, I would say uh, at any one time, criminal cases um, seems like, uh, and by the way, I've increased our cases since I got here. <laughs> I, I, as, as I said to my staff uh, during my uh, investiture speech, if you're going to wear the white hat with me, your caseload just went up. Right? <laughs> uh, I, I would say that uh, in, in a year's time uh, throughout uh, all of our divisions and units of the criminal side of our house, we're litigating and charging over a thousand federal crimes, a thousand um, different types of individual cases. And that, and that may involve certainly much more than a thousand defendants because many cases involve multiple co-defendants who are uh, committing crimes together in organized ways. And so we, we charge groups of people with conspiracies, and, uh, uh, and those types of gang activity and things like that. Um, on, our, on the civil side of our house, uh, it, it's, it's not quite as much. We don't have as many of those uh, cases that are being filed. Again, we, we, ha we have both a reactive and a, and a proactive um, posture in our civil division. That is, we, we respond to and defend the United States anytime, anytime the United States is getting sued or doing the suing, I represent the United States. I'm America's lawyer here in West Tennessee. And so 
Um, there are many more claims against the United States than, than we initiate on behalf of the United States to collect financial obligations. And so uh, that's going to be a much less number. How does that go for you? You know, you, you said 85 people on your staff, roughly, I think you said 40, 45 of those are actually attorneys doing the prosecution, correct. correct? Yeah, So correct. how does that work for you in hiring more attorneys to, to produce or create more uh, work and, and coverage and et cetera? How, how do you get to do that? And does it always feel that you need more? Well, it, it certainly does feel like we always need more and I always will take more. Uh, let me say this. Um, our, our budget and our staffing is set by the Department of Justice. Uh, obviously, uh, I, I serve at the will and pleasure of the president, but I serve under the guidance and direction of the Attorney General of the United States, Mr. William Barr. Uh, when I came in, that was Jeff Sessions. And um, the Attorney General sets uh, the budget and staffing resources for all 93 United States attorneys across the country. Um, and it's based upon a, a combination of metrics, including population and caseload and crime rate and things like that. I will say in Memphis, I'm very, very pleased in the Western District here that since I've been U.S. Attorney, we, under the leadership of both Jeff Sessions and William Barr, we have been able to, I, I say we, I've been able to ask for additional resources that have been granted. Um, we've gotten uh, at least three new violent crime prosecutors that have been new positions that were granted to us because I think the Attorney General recognized that we do have a problem with violent crime here. I made that very clear. Um, we, we have gotten uh, a, an additional uh, a prosecutor for um, uh, narcotics cases as well as opioid-related cases, including uh, health care fraud. And so we've, we've increased our complement of attorneys by, by four uh, the, uh, the, since I've been U.S. Attorney. We've also gotten some support staff additional positions by, uh, in opioid and violent crime paralegals uh, and other, other things like that that specifically focus on individual targeted priorities. Um, I, I'll also say that, that I have a very, uh, as a result of having been a, an elected state prosecutor for many years, I have a great relationship with all my DAs in West Tennessee. And we have a program where we partner with uh, not only General Wyrick here in Shelby County, but also uh, with our, our partners in the 25th district where I used to be the DA to have special assistant United States attorneys assigned from their offices to come over here. We have uh, two gun prosecutors from General Wyrick's office and a heroin prosecutor who does nothing but heroin and fentanyl overdose cases. And so, uh, and then from the 25th, we have a violent crime prosecutor. So we, we've been able to increase our complement of resources and attorneys just by partnering with people. Not to mention the fact that um, the ATF, the FBI, the DEA have all received additional agent resources and technology resources from the Department of Justice as a result of some of the initiatives I've been involved in. Um, we have now have a crime gun intelligence center. We have a NIBIN tech technology, which is the uh, National Integrated Ballistic Information Network, which helps us uh, trace uh, uh, guns uh, through uh, shell casings um, and, and all of those things. And so I would tell you that the Western District of Tennessee, um, thankfully, under this administration, has gotten a lot of federal resources dedicated because the good news is we're getting the resources. The bad, reason, the bad uh, news is, is that we need them because we need to tackle these, these real challenges in our district. What's it like being a public servant and just witnessing um, all the events going around, going on in our country over the last 10 or so days and, you know, how things, what's it like observing things nationally? What's it like observing um, the incident itself? And what's it like just witnessing how 
particularly um, the 22 counties under your jurisdiction, how they have reacted and then also, you know, handled protests and things like that? Well, let me let me first say uh, that I join all Americans in saying that 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 the death of Mr. Mr. Floyd was not only senseless and horrific, it, it, it's unconstitutional, it's criminal. Uh, and my colleague uh, in Minnesota, Erica McDonald is the U.S. Attorney in Minnesota. She and I were, were appointed at the same time. I've talked with her. Well. Uh, and um, she, she's, she's dealing with this. The Attorney General to just today announced, along with uh, the U.S. Attorney there in Minnesota, that, that they are seriously uh, looking at federal charging related to that death. It is inexcusable, and it, it violates every um, expectation and the high standards that we have as humans and that we have as law enforcement officers. Nobody thinks that that was okay. Everybody in law enforcement has uh, soundly and rightly denounced every bit of that, and those officers should be and will be prosecuted, uh, and I would say uh, very aggressively, not only by the state of Minnesota, but perhaps by the United States um, Department of Justice. Here in our district, I'm um, I'm coordinating and, and communicating directly with Maine Justice every day about the situational awareness of protests and demonstrations. But let me say this, uh, protesting and, and, and uh, peaceable assembly and demonstration is at the bedrock and foundation of our constitutional rights in the First Amendment. And I took an oath to uphold that and protect that. And I think that there's really nothing more American than protesting for redress of grievances, to change policies, uh, and, and to bring light to things that are wrong. Dr. King proved that to us here in Memphis. And, and these protests, we, we support absolutely people to express themselves in that way. And so um, I, I'm very pleased to see the Memphis Police Department, the law enforcement, Shelby County Sheriff's Office, Highway Patrol, uh, all uh, provide safety and protection so that those demonstrations can go on so that they can, they can fully be expressed. Uh, we support that. The civil rights of every American, we defend and protect them uh, every day. Uh, I, I will say this, however, uh, the Attorney General's made it clear, uh, um, not so much here in Memphis, but in other places around the country, we've seen, unfortunately, some opportunists and some agitators take advantage of those lawful protests and hijack those for, for selfish and criminal reasons, such as looting and violence and, and um, uh, other types of radical extremist behavior that won't be tolerated. That's still against the law. That still is a crime and will be prosecuted. Uh, and, and so we've been on high alert for all of that. But thankfully, here in Memphis and Shelby County and, and even in Jackson, we've had some demonstrations. They've been peaceable. They've been supported by our elected and appointed officials. Uh, and, and you know what? The people of Memphis have done it right. The people of West Tennessee have done it right. They have shown their outrage and their, their objection. And they have shown that they want and demand some change. And I think you're going to see some public policy changes as a result of it. And so we, we observe and protect that while still denouncing all of the criminal activity that might go along with that. And thankfully, we haven't had really much of that here to speak of in West Tennessee. Well, that's powerful. Last question I have, when you think about your organization and your legacy, and I know it's just from the way you've talked, it's, you know, it's, it's not about you. You just, you, you're, 
you've described being uh, serving serving us, serving our our country. But what? How do you want to be remembered, and what do you want your legacy to be as the United States Attorney for West Tennessee? Wow, that's a great question, Sam. I haven't. I got to be honest with you. I had my head down working so much. I haven't <laughs> thought about my legacy much, and I'm not done. I'm not yeah, done. I, I, I know I, that I, you're I, young. <laughs> I, I very much want to do this uh, this job that, that the president's asked me to do, and I want to serve our country for as long as I can, and 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 in the best way that I can. Um, I, I would tell you that, that, that we have begun a lot of new initiatives and things that, that I think are starting to work. Uh, I, and I've said this before publicly, but let me say it again. You know, we see day in and day out that the, the stories, the news stories about crime, about shootings, about homicides, about robberies, about um, people being victimized every day. And, and, and it, can, it can be depressing. It, and it, it can seem like it's inevitable. It can seem like it's just something we have to live with. And I am convinced in fact, I know, I've, I've been able to prove that crime is not inevitable. You know, I didn't take this job to preside over crime in West Tennessee or to manage crime in West Tennessee. I took this job to reduce crime and protect lives and safety in West Tennessee. Crime is not inevitable. It, it is not like the weather or the waves of the ocean. We can move the needle. We can change it. We can reduce it. And I have... I, I, along with all of our partners, all of my staff, all of our law enforcement partners, all of our public community partners, we've begun some really great initiatives here in the Department of Justice. So we found some things that work um, and, and at, in reducing crime and moving that needle. And, and I guess what I want my legacy to be is that, is that I leaned in, I was aggressive, I was urgent, and we found solutions that actually made crime not inevitable. We changed it. We made it better. Uh, we made it safer. And I, I think that, that I've done that. I want to continue to do that. Um, and I'll continue to do that for as long as I'm here. Um, public servants is now in my blood. It is now my calling. Uh, it started when I became district attorney. It has continued as U.S. attorney. And I don't know what's next for me. The good Lord's been pretty good to me. Uh, and the people of West Tennessee have been incredibly good to me as well. And I love serving them. You know, I'm, I'm originally from West Tennessee. I've, I've lived and practiced law here all my life. I came back home after law school. I love these people. I love this, these communities. And I, I want to stop people who are harming it. And I want to do those hard things so we can have those better things, Sam. That is great. I'm, I'm breaking a rule, but I think it's too good to not get hear from you because – you know, sadly, we don't get to hear all the good things going on as much as we should. You talked about you found solutions that are working, and I, I, and you're talking about how you're moving the needle, and that's what you're focused on, and that's in connection with uh, improving our crime. That's how you want to be remembered. And you talked about leaning in and being urgent. Just curious, what are the things that you're seeing that are working that you and your partners are doing that you want to do more of that is actually a solution? I'm going to give you a few examples because I was ready for this question. I love talking about this stuff, right? So uh, I'll try to work backwards here. So most recently um, we began an operation back in January before the COVID uh, crisis hit called Operation Relentless Pursuit. And uh, ORP is what we call it. And ORP was designed to be a, a federal task force model partnership between the U.S. Marshal Service, ATF, FBI, and DEA, then along with Memphis Police Department, Shelby County Sheriff's Office, and Shelby County DA's office. 
And essentially what it was is we were able to identify those crime drivers, those, those gang members, those violent people in our community who continue to recidivate, continue to, um, to victimize people, and for whatever reason are still not in custody. And so we have targeted those people. We have uh, gone out and we have served warrants upon them. We've begun investigations on them. We've disrupted criminal organizations and gangs. And we have taken some really dangerous and bad people off the streets. And, and that operation is continuing. We got an influx of grant money to the Memphis Police Department to hire more officers. You know, we know them. If you talk to Director Rawls, I think he did just recently. Yes, sir. He would, tell you, he would tell you they have an officer shortage. Everybody knows that, that, that as we increase our officer complement here in Memphis, it's been proven by my friend Bill Gibbons at the Crime Commission that the, the violent crime rate goes down the more officers we have on the streets. And so one of the things that came out of ORP is that we got some grant funding for Director Rawls to hire 50 new officers. Um, we, we got some grant funding for General uh, Amy Wyrick, the district attorney, to hire a new assistant DA to deal with the, the, these new warrants that we're serving now on these really violent actors. And so this this is all culminating with the ATF well, working on, on uh, gun trafficking cases and things like that. And so that's all in, in place. But even before that, we were engaged uh, here at what's called the Public Safety Partnership. Those same partners came together and were trying out-of-the-box things. I talked to you a little bit about our heroin initiative. We now come together with the DEA and organized crime units, and we specifically try to target these hotspots of heroin and fentanyl overdoses. And we don't just, we go out and try to find and arrest and prosecute the sources of supply and hold them accountable for these deaths and these distributions. But we also go into those communities and, and we deploy Narcan. We get people into substance abuse treatment. We direct them to the health department, to resources where they can try to break the cycle of addiction. So it's not just all supply side. We're dealing with the demand side too, and we're saving lives. That's great. That's great stuff. We're using technology, uh, an OD mapping system, um, really exciting work and really meaningful work. Uh, Amy Wyrick has taken the lead, and I participated in her, her program called Operation Comeback. Operation Comeback is this great new what's called focused deterrence model where we, again, when we identify people on, who are on probation or parole for violent offenses, they're back in our community, they've come out of prison, and we know that there's a high likelihood that they might recidivate, we gather them together in a room. And, and it's kind of the carrot and stick approach, right? We gather them in a room, 12, 20 at a time, and, and focus, it's called focused deterrence. We want to deter them from the bad behavior in the future, but we have to give them some opportunity for the good life in the future as well. And so we come in and tell them that if they continue to possess firearms or deal drugs or shoot at people, we're going to lock them up. But then we bring in job placement and career placement uh, services, child support services, driver's license services, uh, uh, alcohol and drug treatment uh, or counseling services, all the things that hopefully can get them on their feet and not want to recidivate. So they can live a productive law-abiding life. Uh, Amy Wyrick's doing that. We're part of that program. That's great stuff, but it, but it needs time to flourish and develop so we can measure our results of that, see if we're, we're reducing the recidivism there. Um, there, there's all kinds of other, uh, you know, special initiatives. We began a carjacking initiative because I don't know if you've noticed, but here in Memphis, um, we've had a spike in carjacking and, and, and we're trying to get our arms around that, but we, we've tried to target the, those groups of people who are committing really, really dangerous and violent offenses. And we know, unfortunately, that some of that involves juvenile crime and, um, that's a challenge, but more work to be done there. And so again, we, we've started a lot of things with great partnerships with great communication and collaboration and sharing of resources and intelligence and ideas that work. And, um, 
I, I don't want to see that end. Uh, and I hope that whoever comes behind me will continue that. You know. Yes, sir. That is great. United States Attorney for West Tennessee, Mr. Michael Donovan, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon and thank you for your service. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you, sir. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned at least one thing today that you can apply to your own life. If you like the show, please make sure and leave a review and be sure to tune in each week as I'll be releasing a new episode. Hope you have a great day.